Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Latin, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Trains are not the most common mode of travel, but kids still love trains and stories about trains. Later this hour, we'll hear from Rosalind and Maggie Bunn, the Atlanta mother-daughter co-authors of All Aboard a series of fun children's stories set on train rides through southern states, introducing kids to landmarks and some history. Plus, speaking of art, our series of local visual artists in their own words today features multidisciplinary artist Jose Barrarizo. First... Anywhere You Run, the new novel by Wanda M. Morris centers around two black sisters ultimately finding out where they belong. Along the way, their past and present unfold with nail-biting suspense. The story is set against the backdrop of the infamous 1964 murders of civil rights workers in Mississippi. The author joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Please introduce us to the Richards family with the girls all named after flowers. Yes, there are three sisters. The oldest is Rose, the middle sister is Marigold, and the youngest sister is Violet, the Richard sisters. And their mother named them after flowers because she said when she brought them into the world, she was bringing something beautiful into the world. Mm, And she did. It also reflects the love within the Richards family the marriage, the attitudes towards the children. What can you tell us about Rose? Yes, I don't think it's a spoiler, but Rose is the older sister and she's deceased through the story. And what I tried to do with all three sisters is not only show 
a loving bond between the young women, but also to show what they thought of each other. And uh, each of them thought the other was much smarter. Interestingly enough, all three were smart in their own way. Rose, the oldest, was smart enough to dream beyond the horror and the trauma of a segregated South. And Marigold, the center sister, was very bookish and intellectually smart. And then Violet, the youngest sister, was very savvy, what you would call street smart. All three sisters thought very highly of each other. And uh, the two remaining sisters fought mightily to protect one another. Rose wanted to move to New York and be a writer. She was inspired by the likes of Lorraine Hansberry. And Mm -hmm. Marigold had law school in mind. Mm -hmm. Was there a bit of yourself in Marigold there? I'd like to think there's a, a bit of each of the sisters in me. I had always dreamed of writing, but had kind of tamped those desires down. And and certainly, yes, I I went on to law school. And and Violet, I I think I identify with her because she's the youngest and she is trying to find her way. And I'm the youngest of seven kids. So Mm. I I identify with that. Violet is quite the beauty, astonishing beauty as you write her. And She's impulsive. She is said to make fast decisions, which she sometimes regrets, although those aren't always the wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. Wanda, you illustrate the power of fiction to affect us in a familiar chapter of history, quoting Violet, I pulled a dollar bill from the wallet and handed it to the woman. She waited for me to set it on the counter, seeing as white people didn't want to slip up and touch a colored person accidentally while touching money, afraid that the mere act of touching somebody colored would taint them. Or maybe they were afraid the expression of human kindness to a colored person was a sign of weakness. Here, Violet's interior monologue describing an exchange of money reveals disgusting behavior toward black people that moves us more viscerally than a statement of facts. Why is it important to put a face to chapters in history? So for me, I started writing the book because we had just come through the 2020 election and there was lots of rancor about the big lie and election fraud. And living here in Georgia, I witnessed the very long lines for people to vote. And I just thought it was all so interesting. It would be interesting to write a book about it. But as I started to research voting rights in this country, I came to understand that there was a much deeper, richer meaning behind how Blacks got the right to vote in this country and decided to explore it from a historical point of view. 
And so the book opens, as you mentioned, Lois, with the brutal murder of civil rights workers, Chaining, Goodman, and Schwerner. And I thought that seemed to ring so deep about the importance of voting. And it was a great place to start what this book would certainly entail over the course of three or 400 pages. Listening to you now, your description of feeling compelled to write this novel after the 2020 election and the aftermath we still feel today coincides with the eerie resonance I felt reading this book during the week of the 2022 midterm elections. Mm. But this story was set in 1964. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what's so mind-boggling about the topics that are covered in the book. Everything from voting rights and inequality at the voting polls to racial unrest and a woman's right to govern her own body and financial independence for women and a whole host of topics, gay and lesbian rights, all of it covered through the lens of 1964 is a stark parallel to everything that is going on right now in 2022. And I I hope the reader gleans that after reading the book, that there's still much work to do around all of these issues. Yes. We see evidence of outrageous injustice early in the story when we learned that Violet was raped by a white man. How do the police respond when Violet reports what happened to her? Yeah, so that was important to me to include in the story because much like my first book, I I deal with issues around women and women's rights. And in 1964, there were no rape shield laws. So a woman who reported a rape or an attack could be subject to any number of horrific questions and and ultimately blamed for a vicious attack. What were you wearing at the time? Did you make eyes at this man? Much like the police asked Violet in the book, well, what did you do to lead this man on? Just horrible, horrible things. And, you know, while women are somewhat protected from questions like that now if they report a rape. I think the violent nature still lingers and that many women still walk into, you know, situations that feel uncomfortable and still have to do kind of that mental checklist. How will I get out of here? What do I have to defend myself? Am I holding my keys the right way to protect myself? Just women who want to go out for a run on an early morning or to go shopping and return to their car through a dark, empty parking lot. And and it ought not be that way. So, yeah, I, I included that as well in the book. The book is in two parts, Leaving Jackson and Headed South. The prologue contains a depiction of the gang responsible for the atrocities we now know as the Freedom Summer murders. 
How does the murder of those civil rights workers in Mississippi fit into the plot of this story? First and foremost, I opened the book with such a horrific crime because I wanted to center the reader on the very vicious nature of 1964 and what it meant to get into the fray to defend equal rights, that two young white men and one Black man would be killed for simply trying to help Black Mississippians get the right to vote. The murder sets the scene and goes on to run a continuous thread through the book because that dread and that fearful nature that at any moment your life could be taken away simply because you were just trying to live. You were trying to negotiate a purchase in a store. You were going into a clerk's office to get an application to vote. Any innocuous thing could place your life in danger. And so I wanted to have that sense of fear and dread kind of go throughout the book. Now, the book deals with some very heavy themes as we've discussed, but the book also deals with hope and uh, redemption as well. And so it was important to make sure that the reader was centered in what it was like to live in a segregationist society in 1964, but that through the midst of that, love and hope and redemption still prevailed. Mm. The Richard sisters end up in places not originally in their plans, what does Marigold discover about Cleveland, Ohio? Yeah, I think much like many Blacks who became part of the Great Migration North from the Jim Crow South, the thought was that things would be much better in the North. And to some extent it was, you know, you didn't necessarily have to ride in the back of a bus. But what Marigold discovers in traveling to the North is that there was still a lack of uh, good job opportunities and, and access to financial independence for Blacks. There were still segregated neighborhoods that were not as you know well off as white neighborhoods. There were still certain areas in the North that Blacks could not walk into, places in Boston and even Cleveland, where she ultimately winds up, still had this undercurrent of racial segregation and less opportunities for Blacks. Unfortunately, she discovers that it is not the nirvana. North is not the nirvana that she thought it might be. No, as we read, Jim Crow has a Yankee cousin. Mm. And Violet in the small Georgia town where she lands? What did she discover? Interestingly enough, she had a somewhat different experience. She found community and love, something that obviously she was not expecting. But she found a group of friends that became, you know, like the family that she had left behind. And one of the things that's interesting in the book, she goes into a diner and for the first time, she sees Blacks and whites eating inside the diner together. 
because there were a few, very few, but there were a few white business owners who, you know, rebelled against the segregationists who decided that, you know, Blacks were not allowed to eat beside whites. And so she encounters that for the first time, and it's kind of eye-opening for her. I tried to infuse the book with lots of things from history that um, were surprising little nuggets. For example, there's a gentleman in the book who owns a farm, and that farm had been passed down to him through his family, and his great-great-grandmother had come to own that because she was the last survivor of a slave master, and she was his his only daughter, his only living kin. And so he passes the the farm on to her and it passes down through this Black family. And that is actually based on uh, a woman who lived here in Augusta, Georgia, and um, had actually inherited land from her slave master ancestor. And so I tried to infuse the book, even though it is fictional, with details that talk to both the good and the bad of our past. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with the award-winning Georgia author Wanda M. Morris. Her new thriller is Anywhere You Run. The character of Hank Cummings, whom you describe, mm-hmm. is one I will not forget. Oh, he's amazing. And Wanda, some of his marvelous optimism and wisdom reminded me of qualities I adore in my husband. Mm-hmm. Would you talk about Hank? Yes, yes. I, I love Hank. And, and I love what Hank and Violet bring to the story. They bring Black love to the story. But Hank was one of those stalwarts in the community that would not be beaten down by Jim Crow laws and segregation and the hatred of white people. And what he did is You know, he owned his own business and his own farm. And because he was so strong, he garnered the respect of the people there in the town. And that was that was a hard thing to do during that time. Right. Because you have very violent, despicable men who call you something other than what you are, who try to make you feel something other than you are. And yet each day he gets up and he works hard and he he fights against that in his own gentle, giant way. (laughs) Yes. And in addition to Hank, there are some other wonderful supporting characters in this story. Let's start with Miss Willa. Yes. I love secondary characters in a book because they are not only there just to prop up the main character, 
in this book, it would be Violet and, and Marigold. But secondary characters should have a life of their own as well. And, and Miss Willa is sort of the matriarch of the Black community. She, you know, she feeds the homeless man who comes through town and she takes in boarders in her house. And, you know, and she does some of that out of her own self-interest because, you know, she has lost her husband and she is lonely. But she makes sure that, you know, everyone is taken care of and, and the people that need a helping hand get a helping hand. There are other characters like Miss Pauline, who unfortunately has made some decisions of her own. And she spends some time working in the sex industry and she helps Violet on her journey, giving her wisdom as well. Characters like Lily, who is a gay young teen who lives in the segregated South where her sexual orientation would not be readily accepted. But because of this community and this people, these people in this community who love and take care of one another, she too finds her way. So I love books that have secondary characters that also have their lives and their stories and their backstories as well. And Lurlene, what's her relationship with Marigold? I adore Lurlene. Yes, yes. Lurlene is Marigold's sister-in-law. The two of them are married to brothers. And Lurlene is this fantastic nightclub singer. She too has moved up to the South, but she seems to have made her way up North and, and kind of carved out her niche better than, than Marigold did. And you know, she too is, she's strong and she's vivacious and she is all these things that, you know, Marigold kind of looks at and, and is, you know, bedazzled by uh, Lurleen's presence. But again, she is someone who brings to the story Black love and elegance and all these things that you know, I hope readers will find that despite the heavy themes, there are also things like, you know, these characters who bring in so many positive and wonderful aspects of that particular time, 1964. Oh, and I have to take this opportunity to point out a gorgeous sentence you wrote about Lurleen singing, quote, Every word spilled from her lips like lyrical nectar into the human ear. How poetic. Thank you. Thank you. I tried to infuse the book with the small things that would make a reader kind of stand and, and take attention. And, you know, it's hard to describe someone's singing. And so I tried to make sure that, you know, when I did do things that have a sensory nature in the book, whether it's smells or sounds, touch, that I tried to do it so that the reader kind of closes their eyes and leans back and says, oh yeah, I, I can hear that. I, I can smell that when they read the book. Oh, yes. 
thinking about Violet saying, she smelled like camay soap and guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Violet is plagued by a tragedy for which she blames herself, but ultimately she was not responsible. Would you talk about Violet's strength and independence, yet how guilt dominates her life? Yeah, Violet is an interesting character because when the book starts out, she bears all this guilt. And it's no spoiler uh, because it's stated at the beginning of the book, she feels very guilty for her sister's death, her, her older sister Rose's death. And one would think that she acts out that guilt in ways through her behavior, staying out late. And, you know, if she chooses to sleep with a man, she does that. She says, you know, she does what pleases her. And so she's kind of one of these veritable, you know, wild child type of people. And, you know, in fact, deep, deep, deep underneath those layers of, you know, feistiness is this burgeoning guilt that she feels. And first and foremost, that's a very heavy burden for her to bear. And secondly, it's not her burden because it was never her fault. It it was actually society's fault. But through the course of the book, she comes to realize that that past that she had been trying to outrun is right there with her. And, and she eventually makes peace with it. But again, that, that kind of guilt that hits her when she's 10 years old, her, her older sister dies when she's just 10 years old. And when you're 10 years old, that's a really, really heavy burden to carry. And so I think she just didn't know exactly how to deal with it. But again, by the end of the book, she comes to recognize all that it really is and and is it it isn't her guilt it isn't her burden to bear one of the most heartbreaking lines in this story is how do you tell a child that life will be better for them when everything in the world tells them something different would you talk about the impact that writing those words had on you wanda You know, that kind of comes out of currently where we are in this very polarized society now, where the truth isn't the truth anymore. And, you know, a lie isn't a lie. And I tell my 13-year-old son every day that you should tell the truth, that you should be honest, that you should treat people kindly, but he goes out into a world or he turns on a television where leaders in this country do not do that. And I kind of turn that on its head in the book because, you know, Black people were telling their children that you can be anything you want to be. You, you are smart and you are talented but yet they would go to the corner store to, you know, negotiate a transaction and they were told to wait at the back of the line or they went to a school 
1964, where they were given hand-me-down, secondhand books that had pages ripped out of them that, you know, were torn and, and barely usable. So how do you tell a child that, yes, the world will be better for you when everything that they look around and see doesn't necessarily demonstrate that? And, and that's something, like I said, I grip, I have to come to grips with now, raising my own son, that, yeah, the world really can be a better place, but you just keep being kind and decent and honest. Not easy. If a book could have a soundtrack, mm-hmm. Nina Simone's song, Mississippi Goddamn, would be perfect. <laughs> I had it playing in a loop in my head after I finished it. Why does the state of Mississippi feel like a character itself in this story? Thank you for that, Lois. That's exactly what I want people to feel like. I want people, when they read this book, to feel like not only Mississippi, but the small town in Georgia and the big city in the North all feel like characters themselves. And Mississippi in particular, because Mississippi was one of those states that was the staunchest in terms of trying to maintain segregation and Jim Crow laws. And in the book, I deal with the summer of 1964, and there was this small wedge of time right after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which said that Blacks could enter into a restaurant through the front door and be served just like any white customer. It it opened up access to buses and public spaces for Blacks. But there was a small wedge of time where in Mississippi, business owners and leaders decided we will not follow the law. Again, sounds very familiar to 2022, but they were adamant that they would not. And some business leaders in Mississippi even closed their doors rather than admit Blacks. And so I tried to draw characters, Black and white, that had to interact in a society where there was a law that said, this is what you must do. And yet people were still fighting, not obeying the law. And how do you negotiate that kind of upside down world. And so Mississippi was one of those states. I mean, there were several states in the South that had Jim Crow laws, but Mississippi in particular was very, very staunch. They had their Mississippi Citizens Councils, which I deal with in the book as well, which were successful white business leaders who had decided we will fight integration come hell or high water. And even if that took murder, they were willing to do it. Anywhere You Run is a thriller. The suspense builds steadily in part two of the book as sinister characters pursue both sisters. It turns out that though they were initially unaware, the Richard sisters have some damaging evidence crucial 
to finding the murderers of the civil rights workers. I'm curious about your writing process here, as there are surprises and intricate elements coming together in unexpected ways for the reader. Have you sketched out every twist and turn of the plot line before you begin the narrative? (laughs) Ah, that's a great question. So actually, I do outline my books, very rough outlines. I know kind of the big beats. I know the big scenes that will occur in the book. But otherwise, it's only when I sit down to actually write and put pen to paper that the story really starts to flow. Once the characters start to feel real and vibrant and alive to me, then I can determine what kinds of decisions they'll make, what kinds of things I can pivot to work to their advantage or their disadvantage. But, you know, thank you for the compliment. I I was shy about asking you that at first. You know, I, I anticipated you saying, do you have any idea what goes into putting a thriller together? <laughs> I so appreciate your sharing that insight into your writing process. <laughs> Wanda, your first novel, All Her Little Secrets, is being adapted for the screen with quite a cast, I've read. Can you tell us where you are in that process? Yes, All Her Little Secrets is being adapted for a limited series on Showtime, and it will be executive produced and starring Uzo Aduba. Uh, She is a three-time Emmy-winning actress. Uh, She starred in Orange is the New Black as uh, Crazy Eyes. And uh, she also starred in In Treatment. Uh, She won an Emmy for playing Shirley Chisholm. And so, you know, the whole team that they have assembled is stellar because Denise Davis, who is also another executive producer, is also uh, the producer of Insecure, uh, starring Issa Rae. And the screenwriter is a gentleman by the name of Orrin Squire, and he has worked on television shows like This Is Us, The Good Fight, and Evil. So uh, it is an incredible, incredible team. Do you know when it will be finished? I know that they are working on the pilot right now. They are writing the pilot as we speak. And so once that's approved by the studio, they'll begin shooting. And I imagine it'll probably take a year or so. But yeah, look look for that. I, I am so, so excited. Oh, I can imagine. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Wanda M. Morris, the award-winning Georgia author's new thriller, is anywhere you run. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, the author train keeps rolling with All Aboard Georgia. 
an illustrated children's book that travels through our state's beautiful and historic landscapes. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Trains are not the most common mode of travel, but kids still love train rides. Rosalind and Maggie Bunn are the mother-daughter co-authors of All Aboard, a series of children's stories set on train rides through southern states. Harrison Keller Pyle illustrated the colorful books. The Marietta, Georgia-based authors join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Rosalind, please tell us how your career in teaching led to writing these stories. Well, I think, uh, and I'm actually almost close to retirement, uh, a couple more years, but I think a lot of the stories, because All Aboard Georgia was my ninth title, you write about what you know. And so working with children, you know, they're amazing. And of course, they give you all kinds of stories. For instance, my very first title was called Sophie May and the Shoe and Time Fairy. And at that time, I worked with kindergartners. And of course, that fairy seemed to be hanging out in the room a lot. So you really write about what you know, but this series, though, is a little bit different. We were actually asked for a book about Georgia because our previous collaboration, Bows Bayou Treasure, illustrated by Michael P. White, um, you know, it was fantasy. I'm from South Louisiana. We know about the habitat, the bayou. So it's just a cool story about a little boy with a treasure map realizing that the habitat was the treasure. All aboard Georgia, we were asked by the publisher, hey, we'd like a book about Georgia. And so Maggie and I were like, I'm not really sure what we would write about or or has it been done before? So we decided that a train needed to travel through all the beautiful, wonderful regions of Georgia, the fictional train, the Piedmont Pacer. So uh, it just kind of came to us and we're fascinated with trains, but we never realized, and I think Maggie can confirm this, how many people still love trains that are not our usual mode of transportation. Yeah. What led to collaborating with Maggie as a co-writer? Well, a few years ago, because I now have five grandchildren and of course my children are grown, Maggie is the oldest. I was kind of changing up rooms at home, you know, for a 
grandkid room. And then, of course, for my the different families of my adult children. And I came across a lot of writing that Maggie had done as a child, even up through high school. And I was reading through it. And I was like, you know, actually, was Matt, Maggie was pretty good. <laughs> and so I had an idea about a title about a princess who really wanted a pet based off of Maggie's youngest sister, who would bring everything into the house. We would have to shake her down to make sure that there weren't going to be any snakes or frogs <laughs> in our home. Oh my. And I called Maggie up because she wasn't living in Georgia at the time. And I said, hey, would you like to write this story with me? And she said, yes. And we did it, submitted it. And a publisher said, yes, we'd like, we'd like to publish this story. And it's really kind of unusual because you don't see a whole lot of mother-daughter collaborations. No, I believe Julie Andrews and her daughter co-write. Um, Maggie, did you ever think that your diaries and youthful journals would come in handy in adult life? No, I never really did. One thing that I really did not like doing in school was writing. So I would wait until the last minute to get something out there. And I think it's because the teacher was telling me what to write about. It wasn't me writing what I wanted to write about. Really? Now, yes, I can come up with my own ideas and me and mom can collaborate and get a story together. And it's so much more pleasurable than writing about what someone else wants me to write about. The books are written in verse. Do you take turns with rhyme, or does one of you do the rhyme and one of you have the idea? The All Aboard series, it's kind of split up into each region of every state. So we split up the regions and kind of do our own thing, do our own rhyming and everything, and then we'll come together and put them together and go through each line. Ah. Let's talk about this series, starting with All Aboard Georgia. Where does the ride begin? Well, it begins in the Blue Ridge region of Georgia, and then it travels on all the way down to the Piedmont until we get to the coastal plains. So we go through each region of Georgia, um, you know, from the highest point to the lowest point. And it, like Maggie said, it's all in rhyme. And we try to highlight some things that, you know, it's places that maybe you've been to or maybe you would just like to visit. That's kind of, And it's kind of like we sort of bill it as just a sweet little travel guide for kids for our great state. Why do you include Dr. King after introducing Lookout Mountain? I think it's because of his famous speech. We just included him there uh, rather than in Atlanta. In Atlanta, we kind of talk about the places that, you know, children might go to. They're probably not going to Ebenezer Baptist Church, I guess, was kind of our thought on that. We wanted to talk about when his speech famously echoed from Lookout Mountain. The Georgia Pacer stops at Stone Mountain. He does. But the illustration doesn't show the carving. Why do you omit the Confederate monument? 
Well, I mean, we don't have a whole lot of say with illustrations per se. We can at this point because we are, you know, the authors of more than one title. We don't always make those decisions in terms of actual illustration. We can give some direction, like we talked about Stone Mountain and hiking up. And of course, they're really tired at the top. But we didn't offer, you know, illustration direction in terms of it being a monument. Okay. I love the part about Savannah. Would you describe that portion of the story as well as its pictures? Oh, yes. Well, we certainly have been to Savannah many times. And East Shaver, which is the bookstore that's kind of in that square, you can sort of see the, the last part of the names. We know that the movie Forrest Gump, of course, was filmed there. And then, of course, talking about the Native Americans who once lived in that land. We've done that in every book. We just thought, you know, signaling and showing those squares was a super cool thing to do. Now, All Aboard Louisiana is your new book. How did you decide where the train should stop in Louisiana? Well, the cool part about Louisiana is I kind of have firsthand experience Though I will say I had not been to every one of those locations. So it it was super cool to visit them once we decided that it would be something for us to write about that children would enjoy from Poverty Point in North Louisiana, all the way, of course, to New Orleans. But a lot of those places, you know, as a child I had been to and Maggie visiting her grandparents had been to. So it was it was easier. Even though we've lived in Georgia for a number of years and have visited these places that we talk about in the book, there's something about home, of course, where you were, where you were raised and where you grew up that made it a little bit easier to um, come up with the locations. You know, you write about what you know. So Georgia and Louisiana, we both frequented many, many times. So we kind of knew where we wanted the train to visit. So when we go with different states that we haven't been to frequently, it's definitely going to be a little bit harder. And I see in Louisiana, you include food in the book. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, the culture in Louisiana revolves around food, you know, from my mother's gumbo to Lazion's meat pies and Natchitoches. These are all things that people relate to when they come to Louisiana. Pauline's. They're everywhere down there. (laughs) Definitely things children can enjoy. Yes. And a good way to illustrate how different cultures influence Louisiana. Yes, definitely. I saw that your next All Aboard book will be set in Tennessee. When will it release? We've been told fall of 2023, so really next fall. Hmm. In what ways are the All Aboard books good resources for teachers as well as parents? Well, at the end of every book, and of course we've taken you through the regions in verse with the illustrations that show the different places, but at the end of the book, we include some nonfiction things about each region just to, you know, it can be a resource for a teacher. And a lot of children like to read those little nonfiction blurbs at the end of the book. We've discovered not just the fictional part of the story, 
but also that nonfiction. So we think it appeals, you know, and actually in Georgia, we didn't really know this, but it's part of curriculum, second grade curriculum to go through the regions. And we just decided to do that because we love the idea of a train and the way to break the state down best was going through its geographical regions. Co-authors Maggie and Rosalind Bunn. More information about their new children's book, All Aboard Georgia, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series of local visual artists in their own words, speaking of art. Today, featuring multidisciplinary artist Jose Barrarizo, Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Now we'll hear from an Atlanta area visual artist in their own words as part of our series, Speaking of Art. Hi, my name is Jose Barrarizo, and I'm an artist and photographer here in Atlanta, Georgia. In my latest body of work, titled Somewhere in Between, I use photography to tell the stories of my community. I'm originally from Guanajuato, Mexico, and I've been here the majority of my life. I've had a fascination for art ever since I can remember, and through, you know, plenty of gallery visits and history books, it's evident that in American art, there's very little images of people who look like me or who share a similar experience like mine. So I set out for this work to tell the stories of people that continue to work and build this country as we know it. It's important for me that my photographs and my artwork in general add nuance to this conversations about what it means to be American. It's not quite clear to me when my artistic journey began. I have been very fortunate to have a mother that early on nurtured my creativity and the communities we come from of working class people. It's very often talked down upon to even dream about in life as an artist, right? Because we immigrate here to work, but I'm one of the very few that has had a family that's nurtured my, my creative abilities. The earliest memories I have of my creativity are of just drawing and sketching. And in high school, I was surrounded by some teachers who were very loving and very nurturing of, of my particular talent in drawing and painting. I would then go on to college and I thought that I wanted to major in political science. But after some talks with some art professors there, I realized that political science wasn't the path for me and I really wanted to take a leap of faith and get a degree in art. I'm inspired and motivated by people. You know, it's the stories that they have to tell. At the end of the day, I'm just a storyteller and I choose the best medium to bring justice to the stories and the stories that they're willing to share with me and the world. I think that good art can bring a greater understanding of our differences and our complexities. So that's what keeps me going and that's what keeps my craft going. I've spent most of my life outside of Atlanta, Georgia, but in the past few years, I've been living and working in Atlanta. And Atlanta's home for so many reasons. Um, every opportunity I've gotten has been because of Atlanta. The city has really received my art and my work with open arms and I'm incredibly grateful for that. I'm also a big uh, hip hop rap fan and Atlanta has 
giving me the soundtrack to my life. Literally, like my work, whether I'm editing or I'm painting, is always through classics by Atlanta artists. Um, one particular thing that I love about Atlanta is how green it is. I'm not one that has traveled the whole world, but I've seen a good bit of other cities and I just don't compare to Atlanta. You know, there's, there's that charm and that rich history that really keeps me here. When it comes to getting out in the city and checking out new artwork, there's a lot of great spaces. Um, of course, I'm biased because I have a, a studio space over at Mint, but they do a lot of great work with emerging artists. Echo Contemporary as well, Nichols Atlanta, Day and Night Projects, White Space, and of course the High Museum. Those are all really great places. To check out more of my work, please visit joseibarariso.com or follow me on Instagram at joseibarariso. Also coming up next year, 2023, I'll be having a solo exhibition at Mint Gallery opening on March 4th. So yeah, be on the lookout for that. Multidisciplinary artist Jose Barariso and our series Speaking of Art. More information about Riso's work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., blues legend and guitarist Eric Gale stops by ahead of his Friday performance at the Buckhead Theater. Plus... We'll hear about Black Nativity, a gospel Christmas music experience, on stage now at the First Center for the Arts. City Light senior producer is Kim Trobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.